From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today begins three days of services and memorials honoring the life of Rosalind Carter. They start in Plains, stretch to Americas and Atlanta, and end with a funeral and burial back in Plains Wednesday. I'm Patricia Murphy. We'll talk to two veteran journalists who covered the Carters through much of their public careers. John Pruitt and Charlie Hazlett remember Rosalind Carter. Then the state Supreme Court puts on hold a new law designed to punish district attorneys who are accused of not doing their jobs. Plus, we'll be joined by Eric Tannenblatt, Nikki Haley's national finance chair, about the surge of interest in her campaign. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Patricia, welcome back. We're all back from a pretty significant Thanksgiving break. I hope you had a great holiday. Yes, it was wonderful, and I hope that you had a good holiday, too. Yeah, and our listeners as well. Um, People are getting back to work today, but... um, you know, it seems to me that with all of the troubling news in the world today, it was good that uh, many of us could be close to family and think about the things we're truly grateful for uh, right now. We have a lot to talk about. This is a very busy week in politics. Patricia, as you obviously know, today we begin three days of uh, services and memorial tributes to Rosalind Carter. Uh, just about now, uh, they were planning to leave planes in a motorcade that would first take them to uh, Phoebe Putney Hospital, where Mrs. Carter at times received various uh, medical uh, treatments. There's a brief ceremony there. And then they go on to Georgia Southwestern University in Americas for a wreath-laying ceremony. And that's an important university because it's where Mrs. Carter went to school in 1945, but it's also where she established her Institute for Caregivers. Yes, a little-known fact is that Rosalind Carter turned down Jimmy Carter's first proposal of marriage (laughs) because she wanted to finish college. And her father, literally on his deathbed, said, I want you to be able to go to college. And one of my greatest regrets is that I won't be there to see it happen, but I want it. I want to know that it that it will. And so she told Jimmy Carter, I need to finish college. And indeed, she did. I uh, went to Georgia Southwestern and um, went on to be very supportive of the school and Plains and the entire region. But one of her greatest legacies has been and will continue to be that caregiver institute at Georgia Southwestern, really focusing on supporting and training uh, caregivers and the people who work with caregivers. So many families are pulled in to become caregivers without knowing how to take care of their family members or even take care of themselves. That was always on her mind. And so this institute has been hugely important to families, including even the Carter family in Rosalind Carter's last days. And so uh, I think having a wreath laying there could not, it, it, there's no better place to start to recognize her legacy Absolutely. than there. Uh, Jennifer Olson is the CEO of the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers. Let's uh, listen to how she described uh, Mrs. Carter's uh, interest in caregiving. It's a personal story for Mrs. Carter. She experienced caregiving when she was 12, when her father was diagnosed with cancer, and she saw her own mother step into this caregiver role. So we started uh, very much in Georgia. Mrs. Carter did a needs assessment with some students and faculty at Georgia Southwestern, uh, talking to caregivers of those with Alzheimer's, caregivers of those with cancer, uh, veteran caregivers, and listening to what the challenges that they were experiencing was within her own backyard. 
Jennifer Olson, CEO of Mrs. Carter's Caregiving uh, Institute. Um, later today, by the way, of course, the motorcade brings uh, Mrs. Carter's remains to Atlanta, where she will lay in state tonight at the Carter Center from 6 until 10. You can get more information about wh- how you can be involved if you want to go by looking at the AJC uh, coverage of that uh, today. Uh, but there are some very specific um, rules that you have to follow in order uh, to do that. In any case, over the next three days, we'll be spending a lot of time looking at um, just what's happening day to day in terms of the tribute to Mrs. Carter. But right now, let's bring in two veteran Georgia journalists who have uh, covered the Carters in one stage of their lives or another. John Pruitt, began as a reporter, photographer for WSB-TV in 1964. Hard to believe because he still doesn't even look like he's 60 years old. <laughs> Whatever he is. I but started John, when I was 12, though. Yeah, you must have. Uh, John, we're so glad to have you here. And, of course, we do want to mention uh, that you are now a best-selling author. Tell it true. Your very powerful novel based on a on a true murder incident, a racial murder incident in uh, Georgia. But today we're going to talk about Rosalind Carter. Thank you, John, for being with us. My pleasure. Charlie Hazlett was a reporter for the Atlanta Journal when the Constitution and the Journal were two separate newspapers. Charlie, <laughs> you covered uh, government and politics. And um, you ended up in the 70s at the Journal's uh, Washington Bureau for most of the Carter presidency. And we're really happy to have you with us as well today, Charlie. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. So, John, let's start with you. Uh, Since you were a reporter as far back as 64 here, what do you recall as your first experience covering the Carters and your experience in getting an opportunity to see Mrs. Carter close up. When did that happen? Well, it would probably have been the uh, Democratic convention in Miami Beach in 1972, the uh, convention that nominated George McGovern for president. Uh, and Carter, of course, was was governor. And we had a lot of access to Jimmy Carter. He was very active that week. He was Some thought he was maneuvering himself for a possible vice presidential pick. In any event, he was quite active. And following the convention, we had a, a session, just a very informal session, in the Carter's hotel room. It was the Lucerne Hotel, I recall, right on Miami Beach, no longer in existence. But we sat around in the most informal way, uh, just drinking tomato juice and, and eating bananas. And Carter, I think, was in sweat, sweat clothes. I mean, it was... There were only a few reporters involved, and I will never forget that session because Rosalind was there, and it was the first time I had really had a chance to be with the governor and the first lady in such an informal setting. I don't recall a lot about what we discussed. I'm sure it was political in nature, but that was my first encounter. But there were many others after that. I recall when uh, the Friendship Force went to Brazil back in 1973, Rosalind, of course, was first lady of Georgia, and she went as part of the delegation. And I got to observe her in in that milieu and talking to Brazilians and noticed that she could connect with them just as she had been able to connect with so many Georgians uh, by just coming across as a human being, a self-effacing, pleasant, interesting person who wants to know about other people. 
She was perfect for that mission. And of course, there were many other episodes I can recall, but those were the early years. And then Rosalind certainly impressed me as a, as a dynamic woman, shy in many respects, but one who certainly mastered that and became a master campaigner in the most effective way possible and in, you know, people to people contact, which was so important in Carter's presidential run in Iowa and New Hampshire, where retail politics is very intimate, as you know, Bill, uh, she was able to connect and I think made a real difference in that presidential campaign. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. John, it's Patricia Murphy. I'm going to bring Charlie Hazlett in here as well, because once the Carters were in Washington, Mrs. Carter um, really was not like, I think, previous first ladies. She was so focused on policy. But Charlie, it seemed like Washington didn't quite know what to do with the Carters or Mrs. Carter because she decided to repurpose her inaugural ground that she had had when Jimmy Carter was uh, inaugurated as governor. Um, she They decided not to serve wine at the White House to save taxpayer money. Um, so that was the kind of coverage she was getting. But she really was very policy focused as well, particularly on mental health. What was the general reception of Mrs. Carter from your vantage point? Well, I, I, I think you captured it. I mean, Washington didn't know quite what to do with um, with all these Southern folks who parachuted in uh, to the White House and, and the agencies. I mean, um, Bert Lance at, OP, at, uh, at OMB and, um, uh, and Max Cleland at the Veterans Administration. And it was a, it was a very different time, not to mention a real influx of, of Southern journalists. Um, but uh, so, but I, I, in terms of the, uh, I want to pick up on something that, that John said, because it's something I've been thinking about. Um, uh, Rosalind Carter was, she was a shy, small town, rural Georgia girl who went to a regional university uh, college near her hometown and, um, and, and might well have spent her entire life in, in Sumter County, Georgia, if she hadn't married Jimmy Carter and gone off first to the Navy and then back to Plains and then into politics and obviously on to Washington and, and on to Atlanta and then Washington. But she, uh, she if, you, if you know anything about her, if you read about her, she clearly grew into um, those roles and I think she came to relish them. She was she was re- regarded or described during his presidency as the first woman vice president. And yes, she was she was involved in policy. She sat in on cabinet meetings. She uh, she read and edited his speeches, including the State of the Union speech, uh, and all all that sort of thing. And the thought that that has occurred to me, and it's a, it's important to to understand what a different 
era that was. It's been 45 years since Jimmy Carter took office as president, nearly half a century. That was an entirely different era, especially where women in politics were concerned. There were very few women, uh, relatively speaking, especially holding public office. Um, and she, so she was beginning to break molds that had been in place for a long time. I found myself thinking that she, in some ways, was was sort of the 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 progenitor for Hillary Clinton in terms of of a of a first lady who played such a significant role in uh, in, uh, in 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 public policy at a national level. And I and I have also and also think that or wonder whether if they had gone into office ten or twenty or thirty years later, she might have run for office herself at some point, because to John's point, she had those those people skills uh, much better, frankly, than 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 Jimmy Carter did. She was the more natural politician once she got used to it. Um, and, uh, so, so I, I, you know, I think that there's a, uh, there, there's a, a, a lot to be, um, uh, admired in the, in, in her service to, to, um, uh, to the state and the country, uh, and, uh, and, and to be studied by current and future generations. John, was that your observation from Georgia while all of this was going on? You saw her grow in her role as First Lady of Georgia, which she said really she felt helped prepare her be a First Lady in Washington who was ready to hit the ground running and and seemed very, very confident, especially, as Charlie said, for a woman who had come from such a small community um, and had a relatively um, not sheltered existence, but just a limited exposure uh, but then she got to Washington and was very confident when she was there. Yeah, I think the Odyssey is a remarkable one from small town planes to Navy wife to running the peanut warehouse, very accomplished in business, uh, to First Lady of Georgia, two gubernatorial campaigns in which she overcame her shyness to campaign. The second campaign, obviously successful. She's the First Lady of Georgia. And then the improbable campaign of Jimmy Carter for president, which she happens to win. And Patricia, one image that I will always have of Rosalind Carter is holding hands with Jimmy Carter and walking down Pennsylvania Avenue during the inauguration. Uh, To me, that was a statement that we are a team and we're not necessarily going to do things the way they were done in the past. And that certainly was the case. Uh, Agree totally with Charlie. Uh, she, She came into the White House not in a Hillary Clinton kind of way. It was more of a, a quiet, effective, competent way, knowing she had the entire support and confidence of her husband in the Oval Office. She did controversial things like sitting in on cabinet meetings, but she served notice she was not going to be ignored. In fact, she expanded the staff and began work on a number of projects, primarily mental health, making a real mark, a real difference in the mental health field, removing the stigma that had always been part of the mental health episode. It's been in the shadows. She wanted to bring it out of the shadows to make it something to talk about. And her record is clear on that, and we all know it. But 
Uh, yeah, she made the transition. She, it was a step-by-step -step transition, but by the time, Patricia, she got to the White House, I think she was more than ready to take on the job. John, um, we should go back a step, though, and point out it is, it, that it's not as if Mrs. Carter wasn't interested in politics early on. According to the uh, Georgia Southwestern University website, uh, she was vice president of her class, and she was a founding member of the Young Democrats Club at Georgia <laughs> Southwestern, which is something I certainly didn't know until I uh, looked at it. So it's even more appropriate that there will be a ceremony today at Georgia Southwestern Club. Uh, university. But, but John, um, I wonder uh, what it was. You talk about the retail politics of Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, right. And of course, we know about the peanut brigade, which went to New Hampshire, all these Georgians who went to New Hampshire uh, to knock on doors to say, Jimmy Carter, we know him, we love him. And it would strike me that that's the perfect environment for Rosalind Carter to have been able to get her message about her husband's work and life across to people in that retail setting, John. Absolutely. And to understand the context of the times, we're coming out of Watergate. Uh, there is a great cynicism abroad in the land about politicians and particularly those in Washington. And suddenly you have a new young face, a Southern governor who is racially progressive, who is a New South candidate in every respect, not well known, but the media becomes fascinated by this man, particularly after he won in Iowa and then won in New Hampshire and the, and the snowball was rolling. But the peanut brigade was such an important part of that. Uh, Dot Kirby, Bill, and, mm. and Patricia, I'm sure you know Dot, probably Rosalind's best friend who was with her, uh, talks about Rosalind and the way she was able to interact, interact with people. And of course, in Iowa, as you know, it's small groups, it's parlors, it's uh, VFW halls, small groups of people. Same thing in New Hampshire. And a lot of those appearances and that personal connection, the ability to connect is so important. And people were curious about these Southerners who presumed to go to the White House. So there was intense interest in them. And Jimmy Carter, I think, is very effective in that role. Small politics, small groups. Rosalind, every bit as effective as, as he. So, uh, yeah, they were a great team. And uh Understanding the times when people were looking for fresh new face, somebody, someone who talked about having a government as good as the American people are, the stars aligned and the Carters went to the White House. Charlie, what stands out for you from your time in Washington during the Carter years? Um, obviously, it's so it's easy for us in retrospect to praise so much of what Rosalind Carter did um, at the time as being so progressive and really groundbreaking, even subtly so. But she did get a lot of criticism while she was doing it. Well, she did. And the, and the Carter administration um, suffered a lot of criticism, some of it fair, some of it, frankly, uh, uh, probably not. Uh, they were um, uh, found themselves in the middle of a of an uh, economic downturn. Um, uh, then were confronted with the Iranian hostage crisis, uh, and and uh, and Carter obviously um, uh, tried to do everything to avoid. A uh, conflict in that, or to uh, going to war, frankly, um, and uh, and and paid a, a a big political price for it. She was um, it, it. It's she was, I think, probably 
his his smartest political advisor in a lot of ways, and did a better did a good job, an excellent job really, of of helping him understand why he needed to do a better job of of communicating uh, the accomplishments of of his administration, which were substantial. Um, the Departments of Energy, the Department of Education, the creation of FEMA, and so many other things that are, are still criticized by some, but have made a huge difference in the in the in the in the life of the country. And she helped with the with the strategy around communicating an awful lot of that, and is that not not um, appreciated there. But she was she was criticized for being too ambitious, uh, for being, um, uh, she was referred to as the iron butterfly and the the steel magnolia and things like that. I, I don't think that bothered her um, uh, at, at all. And uh, she acknowledged that she was ambitious and did not think that was a bad thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, she... They they took their licks as the uh, as the first generation of Southerners uh, to come into Washington and come into a especially into the White House, um, and and that without a doubt made things more difficult for um, for for them as a first family and as an administration. John, um, I watched the Carter presidential uh, campaign and then his uh, term in office from Chicago where I was working as a journalist. I didn't get to Atlanta till 1983. But like you, I saw them in their post-presidency period um, trying to make sense of what had happened, how they lost the White House, but also beginning their planning for the Carter Center and what they wanted to accomplish. And my recollection, having gotten to know them a little bit during that period, is that Rosalind was as engaged and as important to what they would do at the Carter Center as her husband, the former president. Yeah, we were both there the night the Carter Center was uh, dedicated, Bill. I'll never forget that. But uh, interestingly, as a Preface to what I'm about to say, Rosalind, I think, was probably more of a political realist than her husband, because she has said that she knew Carter was going to lose in 1980 to Ronald Reagan. She knew that was going to happen. And not many people did because the polls didn't reflect that. It was really the last weekend before Election Day, things began to implode on the Carter campaign and, and Reagan won in a, a landslide. But but Rosalind said she knew that. And as you know, uh, all of you know. Uh, following that defeat, there was a state of, well, maybe not technical, but certainly depression in terms of what's next. Mm-hmm. You know, how did we lose something they weren't used to dealing with? And it took them a while. They go back to planes. I was there the day they came back, a rainy day. The hostages were released in Iran uh, and they were there in the rain, you know, meeting their supporters who turned out to greet them and. Then it was a case of what's next. Well, what was next was triumphant, the Carter Center. And yes, Bill, Rosalind was extremely involved in that every step of the way and remained so uh, up until the end. Uh, and, and what a monument to um, a post-presidency. Of course, Rosalind was always sensitive about this too much being said about the post-presidency. Jimmy Carter had a great presidency, and she was insistent on defending that 
that one term he had. But uh, I think we can all agree that uh, the Carters redefined what a post-presidency should be about serving people, about eradicating disease, about human rights, about monitoring elections when called in to do so. And not to mention the mental health strides that she was able to make from the Carter Center through all those years. Uh, it's remarkable. And she was part and parcel of every decision being made and part and parcel of all the success of the Carter Center. It's, it's, the accomplishments are amazing, truly. Yeah, Charlie, as much as uh, Jimmy Carter is credited with kind of redefining what it means to be a former president, I think Rosalind Carter did the exact same thing for what it means to be a former first lady. She continued to testify on Capitol Hill. She um, continued to amplify journalism that uh, went in depth on mental health issues. She really continued to leave her mark um, for decades to follow, um, as well as with Habitat for Humanity. Um, absolutely. They, you know, to John's point, it, it took them a while to, um, to frankly, to get over and to get past the loss. Um, uh, that's, that's, that's a, a difficult thing to do. Uh, but once they did, they, they settled in, they developed plans for the Carter Center. They put it together and, and the rest of that is history. But yes, she was, um, uh, a, a, a tireless uh, champion for for especially mental health. Uh, the, the work that she did to encourage journalism uh, around mental health was, uh, I think, remarkable and and and, and something that, um, uh, that that I hope will continue. I'm sure that it will. Uh, but it's it has made a difference. She understood. The role that 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 putting a uh, a public spotlight on issue could could play and the difference that it could make um, in in uh, in an issue like that, especially long term, and it's and that's been a a, a long term um, uh, struggle and um, uh, and issue that has that is still being. Uh, worked on and um, uh, but the, the the progress has been I think uh, remarkable and notable and she gets a ton of the credit. Charlie Hazel, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to uh, uh, cut you short, but we're uh, unfortunately out of time for this segment. Charlie Hazel, what I should have also mentioned in talking about your career as a journalist for the Atlanta Journal is you are also the author of a wonderful, wonderful blog, Trouble in God's Country, where for years now you have been using data, statistics, hard facts to help us understand just how troubled uh, rural Georgia is compared to much of metro Atlanta, Trouble in God's Country, a remarkable resource for us journalists, but also something that um, our listeners might want to listen to, Trouble in God's Country. Charlie, thank you for being here. And John Pruitt, my former colleague at WSB-TV, your memories of the Carters are so welcome on this day that we begin the tributes to Rosalind Carter. John, thank you so much for being with us, too. My pleasure. We're going to take a break right now. When we come back, suddenly Nikki Haley is on the lips of many people who are watching Republican politics. We're going to talk to one of her top advisors and fundraisers, Eric Tannenblatt. But first, we'll pause for these messages. 
ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. Every morning delivered to your email, you can get Georgia's must-read newsletter from the AJC Politics team. The new Politically Georgia Morning Newsletter is your daily jolt of news insights and analysis from Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Adam Van Brimmer, housed under our new brand, Politically Georgia. There's no better time to subscribe at AJC.com newsletters. Patricia, you and I, through three debates, and our colleagues, uh, Greg Bluestein and Tia Mitchell, have talked about Nikki Haley usually being the standout performer in the debates. Now the polls are beginning to show her gaining ground in both Iowa and certainly in New Hampshire. And all of a sudden, you and I talked about this before the show, she was all over the newspapers, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York, the national papers talked about the surge in her campaign. She is having a moment that could be sustainable. Yes, I would say even more importantly, she has been in the Des Moines Register and uh, the uh, Manchester Union leader uh, because she has been doing the work in those early states, logging immense numbers of miles getting into those early states. And um, really, I uh, I read this morning that in, in Iowa, everybody is putting all their chips in the middle of the table. But it looks like Nikki Haley's bet is going well so far. We won't know until people actually caucus because we, we have to let the voters uh, make their voices known. But she she seems to have been getting stronger and stronger during this campaign while other candidates have really clearly begun to fade. Well, we're going to talk to somebody who's been with Nikki Haley from the very start, and that is Eric Tannenblatt, um, who has worked as a fundraiser and advisor to uh, presidential candidates going back to the Bush family, George H.W., George W. Bush, Jeb Bush in 2016. Uh, Eric, you were uh, one of the top advisors and fundraisers for Mitt Romney during his presidential race in 2012. And we go back with you in Georgia to when you were chief of staff for Governor Sonny Perdue during his first uh, term as governor. Eric, Uh, Thank you for joining us. You are a major player in raising money for Nikki Haley's campaign. Give us your sense of what's happening here with her efforts. And even though she's surging, Donald Trump continues to be far out front in almost every poll, whether it's in Iowa, New Hampshire, or nationally. Well, first, um, thank you for having me. And congratulations, Patricia and Bill and to Tia and Greg on a, a great show. Um, and so I'm, I'm pleased to join you today. Look, Nikki, Nikki Haley entered the race back in February, and she said at the time that this was going to be a marathon, not a sprint. And she was going to put in uh, the, the, the hard work uh, and spend time in those early primary states. And she said that the debates were going to be the turning point, and that's when people were going to start to pay attention. And it's working out exactly as she predicted. Uh, I think she did a a tremendous job in the first debate and then followed on with two other strong debate performances in the second and third. And as Patricia said earlier, uh, she's the candidate that's got the momentum. And ever since the debate, she's the one that's been on the rise while the other candidates uh, have been on the decline. 
And I think that more and more people are starting to focus on this race more than they were, you know, six or eight months ago. Uh, and I think in particular, the voters in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina are paying more attention than the rest of the country. And that's why you're seeing the polls uh, tighter in those early primary states. And uh, the, the candidate that seems to be on the rise, as you both have, have indicated, uh, is, is Nikki. So obviously, as an early supporter of hers, I'm pleased to see where uh, things are going. Uh, the votes have not been counted yet. Uh, she did issue uh, a release this morning indicating she's on 21 of the state ballots and continuing to get her name on the ballots across the country. So she's in this for the long haul. Um, I think it was, uh, you know, Governor DeSantis has now put all of his eggs in the Iowa basket. Uh, Nikki's not doing that. She's, uh, you know, she's building uh, her support in Iowa, but she's now in a solid second place in New Hampshire. And then following New Hampshire comes South Carolina. And as we've seen in past uh, elections, uh, typically, the winner of Iowa doesn't necessarily win uh, New Hampshire. Now, there's unique dynamics in this race and that we have a former president running again. Uh, and so uh, I guess we could say all bets are off and we'll, we'll see how that goes. And with regards to your, your comment about Donald Trump being so far ahead in the polls, I, I'm not as concerned about that right now because I really don't think people in general are paying attention. I mean, your listeners are, and, and I am, and you are, because we're political junkies. But I think the average voter out there is busy, you know, dealing with their families, uh, their jobs, the upcoming holidays. And until things start to, um, you know, focus in their individual state, they're not going to pay attention to it. That's why you see the, the numbers moving in Iowa and New Hampshire, because you know, that those TV airwaves are flooded with commercials. And so people can't get away from it. Plus, Iowa, New Hampshire voters tend to take this very seriously early on. Um, so I'm, I'm not as concerned about the uh, the where the former president is right now. I think those numbers are going to they're going to shrink as we get into the race. Eric, you have loads of experience at the presidential level, um, as we said, with Mitt Romney and George Bush and um uh Jeb Bush. Jeb, literally I'm like what is his yeah. brother's name? <laughs> Jeb Bush. Um but those that is decidedly not the Trump wing of the party and the Trump um energy, the Trump money, the Trump enthusiasm that you see at his rallies it feels so dominant. Um but what is your assessment of this GOP electorate? They're they're obviously two pretty specific kinds of voters um, that we could say pro-Trump, anti-Trump. But who else is in there and why does this feel like an opportunity this year and does it? Yeah, well, well, first of all, I think that the former president has a ceiling. Uh, and and if you add up all of the other candidates, you'll see that, uh, you know, President Trump, especially if you look at Iowa, New Hampshire, He's in the you know low to mid 40s, so there's obviously a chunk of the electorate, and these these are states where people are paying attention. So I think people are open to an alternative. And even when you poll uh, President Trump's supporters, um, there's there is you know a, a segment of them, probably more than half of them, that are hardcore and they're going to vote for Donald Trump no matter what. But there are also some of Donald Trump's supporters that are open to an alternative. 
And and so uh, I don't think that you necessarily can say anyone right now who says they're a Trump supporter is going to definitely vote for Donald Trump. The other thing, too, is certain states have open primaries. Uh, New Hampshire being one where independents and Democrats can vote in the Republican primary. And given that President Biden has you know, decided to pass on New Hampshire and focus on South Carolina, uh, I don't think there's going to be that much activity. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many people are going to go vote for Dean Phillips, but I think it's a real opportunity. And if you listen to Governor Sununu, who uh, is very popular in New Hampshire, understands the electorate, uh, is very well regarded among independent voters, uh, he believes that that state is really up for grabs. So I, I think that you have to get beyond just Republican identified, those that identify as Republican voters. The New York Times had a lengthy piece today on <clears throat> the fact that the rules, <clears throat> the rules in many of these early states could favor a front runner. Um, they're winner take all, particularly once you get to Super Tuesday. California is one of them that is now winner take all um, under a lot of circumstances. Could you lay out a little bit what that those early states look like? Obviously, New Hampshire would let uh, would be an open primary state, so it could be a big opportunity. Um, what else? Is it true you think that these rules favor a an either an incumbent or a front runner, or do you feel like it still is anyone's game? Well, there's no doubt that winner take all, uh, it benefits, um, you know, a front runner or the person that has the momentum. Um, and so, you know, one thing I will say that the Trump campaign did a very good job, uh, over the last several years of changing party roles to get rid of, um, uh, the um, the delegates based on congressional districts in some states. That's the way it used to be divided up. And now in many states, it's winner take all. But one thing about presidential elections, um, it, it's interesting over the years, it, it's, it's really a lot of it is about momentum. And, it, you, you know, even if you look at the past winners of Iowa, they ended up not going the distance. Um, but, you know, when you win, uh, there'll probably be three tickets out of Iowa, so they say. And then uh, someone, uh, you know, there could be a big surprise in New Hampshire. There could actually be a surprise in Iowa, too, but a surprise in New Hampshire. And then then it just starts to steamroll. I mean, remember President Biden. Uh, I mean, he he was in the back of the pack until South Carolina. So post Iowa, New Hampshire. So once you get that momentum, it just picks up. So to your question about you know these winner take all states yes it, it'll make it easier to rack up the delegates but i don't necessarily think that that benefits one candidate over the other i think it's whoever has the momentum eric um a couple times now you've referred to iowa and new hampshire in tandem um and 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 the reason i think it's interesting that you would uh perhaps be a little bit more focused on new hampshire than iowa is we know there are a lot of republican evangelical voters in iowa um, Ron DeSantis is making a big pitch for them, for their votes. Nikki Haley may or may not be really their kind of candidate. So in many ways, you're, you, you you made the point that the winner in Iowa doesn't necessarily go on to a success. Ted Cruz won Iowa in 2016. Donald Trump finished second. But so if there are three tickets to punch coming out of Iowa and Nikki Haley is one of them, 
it sounds to me as if your campaign is more focused on how well you can do in New Hampshire as long as you can, you know, get out of Iowa safely. No, I don't I don't think that's the case. I mean, Nikki is spending a tremendous amount of time in Iowa as well. And uh, while Iowa has a lot of evangelical voters, Nikki Haley has support from evangelical voters as well. And and that 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 is growing. I mean, people want want to you know, put people in different lanes. And I don't think that's that's fair. I mean, Nikki Haley was a conservative governor uh, from the from South Carolina. Um, in fact, when she got elected, she 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 actually came out of the Tea Party movement. Mm-hmm. And and so I think the thing about Nikki Haley that people are learning is that she has a broad support across the electorate. And it's not just in she's not an anti-Trumper. She served in the Trump administration. She's the first to say that she agrees with a lot of the Trump policies. She just happens to believe that he was the right person when he got elected, but he's not the right person right now. And as she said, chaos follows him and we don't need that right now. And, you know, as as the country becomes more diverse uh, and, and you know, I've, I've been a big proponent that Republicans need to broaden their appeal to the electorate. And we have to be a big tent party. And I think that's one of the things Nikki Haley is demonstrating. She has broad appeal across the whole party. Something else voters will learn about Nikki Haley if they attend one of her events is that she is an accountant. And uh, you told me runs such a lean operation. She is staying at the Holiday Inn Express while her fancy donors look for nicer places to stay. Talk a little bit about how she's running this campaign. And that has gotten the notice of a lot of uh, the major donors that have been sitting on the sidelines or even some that supported Governor DeSantis in the beginning that have backed away. I mean, he's blown through $100 million. Uh, and if you look at the, the how much that some of these campaigns are spending, they're flying on private jets, they have entourages with them. Uh, Nikki, from the very start, said, I'm not doing this. I'm flying commercial. As you said, Holiday Inn Expresses, uh, she's staying there. And, and she has been very, very frugal in terms of uh, how the campaign spent their money. And while some candidates were like running ads in early you know, June and July, she said, no, we're going to hold all our money till it really makes a difference. And now she's putting her you know, ads on television at a time when people are starting to really pay attention and focus. And, uh, and I think that's you know, worked to her benefit. It also matters how these campaigns are spending their money because it, it literally means their campaigns can last longer if they need to. Some campaigns simply run out of money and go broke and they just can't keep going, even if they think they could do better. Well, look at look at Ron DeSantis. I, I, don't, I don't mean to pick on him, but he's an easy target when we're talking about money just because of how much money he transferred over. I think it was like $100 million or maybe it was a slightly less than that into a super PAC. And and now he's talking about having, you know, the last disclosure, he had, you know, $5 million uh, or three and a half on hand that he was, you know, going to spend in only in Iowa. And, you know, you you can't do that. You have to be able to go to the, go the distance. Eric, um, we got time for one more question. 
Um, and, and I'd like to ask you this. Um, some of it, as I mentioned, the national news had a lot of Nikki Haley uh, uh, coverage over the holiday weekend. And some of it has to do with um, your campaign, and you're certainly a part of it, raising as much money as you are, uh, gaining support from people who had been giving, mega donors, been giving money to DeSantis. Is that happening? Are you starting to attract mega donors who are, no, who are now disenchanted with Ron DeSantis? Yeah, well, I don't think that, I mean, there were some mega donors that were on board for DeSantis that have backed away, but I think there were probably more mega donors that were sitting on the sidelines mm. waiting to see how is this going to shake out and who's the candidate that is going to provide the alternative to President Trump. And I think they're now seeing that that is Nikki. And I will say, just as someone who has been raising money, I have felt a big difference, a sea change in the last, you know, 30 to 40 days. Mm. Uh, you know, we're, we're having Nikki's coming back the end of December, right before Christmas for a fundraiser. And within six days, I lined up 30 hosts and they were calling me. It wasn't necessarily me calling them. And that's very different from back in March when we had our first fundraiser. And I'm calling people saying, you have to come, please come. You're going to like what you see. And so I think that's happening all over the country. Eric Tannenblatt, um, we're going to take a break, but I really appreciate your being with us today. We're fortunate that we have you right here in Atlanta and can talk to you about the Haley campaign. And I'm certain that between now and our primary, we'll have you back again. So, Eric, thank you so much for being with us on Politically Georgia today. Thank take you. care, Eric. Patricia, care. of course, we should point out that between now and the, our primary, but certainly even between now and January 15th, the Iowa caucus, we are want to talk to representatives of the other Republican candidates, as well as Democrats who are in the field, uh, President Biden, presumably his uh, people as well. So uh, we start with Eric Tannenblatt, but we certainly want to hear from the others as well. Oh, absolutely. We have requests out to many campaigns. If you're a campaign listening, give us a call. We want to talk to you. <laughs> we, we absolutely want Politically Georgia to be the presidential campaign's first and last stop before they come to Georgia for our presidential primary on uh, March 12th. Uh, Patricia, perfectly well said. Thank you so much. Let's get to a break. We'll be back with more in a moment. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Politically Georgia newsletter, and now we have the new Politically Georgia PM Update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on while you're at work. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia Newsletter. That's all one word, all spelled out. AJC.com slash Politically Georgia Newsletter. Patricia, later today we expect the state Senate 
the Republican leadership there to release the maps that they're proposing in this required redistricting by federal judge uh, Steve Jones. We don't know quite what they're going to do, but by tomorrow, we'll have a chance to talk about it in more depth. And we're going to talk with John Barrow, who <laughs> probably knows more about redistricting. How many times was John Barrow drawn out of a district that he had served in in Congress? I literally <laughs> lost count, but I'm sure Bar- John Barrow never lost count. Greg Bluestein and Tia Mitchell uh, will be here. Uh, they're back again tomorrow. We'll talk about redistricting and what the Senate maps are going to look like. We expect the House maps pretty soon as well, I think. Uh, yes. So the General Assembly is going to be gaveling into session in the House and the Senate on Wednesday at 10 a.m. Uh, before then, we certainly expect to see state Senate maps. Uh, the Jolt this morning reported that we are getting early indications that there may not be any incumbents drawn into the same district. That's something that uh, incumbents may be able to avoid in the state Senate maps. Uh, the state House may be a lot more difficult because there are so many more members and um, more requests from the judge to change more districts, five in the House and two in the state Senate. There were a couple of other items about that in the jolt that I found really interesting. One of them is that um, when you talk about trying to preserve the incumbencies of members of the Senate, they're talking about Democrats as well as Republicans. Right? Yes, yes, that's exactly right. We'll have to see exactly what the maps have to say. But, uh, you know, at this point, it comes down to it's just such a it's such a game of three dimensional chess. They need to um, be responsive to the judge's requests. They want to make sure that they are keeping their um, kind of their Republicans want to make sure that they're keeping as large a partisan advantage as possible, which is not illegal. But they do also have to be responsive to the judge uh, requiring that these be more favorable to black voters to make sure that black voters have the full say um, in in their own elections. And that's what this is going to be all about. You also uh, reported in the jolt that, of course, we've passed the one year residency requirement in legislative districts, which means if you if, if your district has changed, you may have to you're going to have to run whatever district you're living in at the time. That's exactly right. And that is a constitutional requirement. Yeah. There's no legal challenge to that rule. Uh, however, we also heard from Syra Draper, a Democratic representative who's deeply involved in this process, that there may be legal challenges that could could uh, overturn or delay or re-challenge these maps. So she was envisioning a, a chance where people may be running in multiple different districts over the next few years. We'll yeah. have to see how it all plays out. But if you are a member, particularly of the state house, they are making uh, adjustments for their districts that we aren't. We may not even know about right <laughs> now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, we only have a couple minutes to talk about a very important decision from the state supreme court, and we can pick up on it maybe tomorrow as well. But over this long holiday weekend, the state Supreme Court did something very important. They ruled that they that the um, the law that establishes a commission to uh, punish DAs who are thought to be not handling their duties correctly, according to the Republicans who voted for that law, they cannot draw up the rules that the law requires them to do so, which means legislators may have to go back to the drawing board and redo this law in the next session. Yes? Yes, that's exactly right. That This was the result of um, the Georgia State Supreme Court going in and looking at the legislation that, that says specifically it shall be the Georgia Supreme Court mm-hmm. that determines the rules of this commission, how it will operate, what kind of powers it will have. And the state Supreme Court said, 
that is not constitutional. There is a separation of powers. The judiciary should not be making the rules for uh, the legislative branch to then oversee the prosecutors who themselves are constitutionally elected officers. And so um, that is something that the the DAs challenging this law in the first place have long said it would not be constitutional for the Supreme Court to to write the laws. And so um, there are additional legal challenges against this. And of course, this is the commission that has already received uh, complaints about District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Yes. Republicans, when they were putting this bill together, said, no, 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 it's not about Fonnie Willis. It's about other prosecutors around the state, progressive prosecutors, who they said did not have the right to be saying they will not uh, prosecute certain classes of laws. Before we finish, we should point out the court did not rule on the commission itself, the legality of the commission itself, which could become an issue uh, in court challenges, but rather just on the point that they have been asked to draw the rules and it's outside of their mandate. That's exactly right. That's why lawmakers would have to go back in and rework how this uh, could actually function. And certainly it's a question that states all around the country are following closely because there are, there will be efforts in other states to com- to create similar commissions if Georgia lawmakers are able to do this. Patricia Murphy. Thank you for uh, illuminating us. I loved reading the jolt about all of these items uh, today. We're completely out of time for today's show. We're back again, of course, tomorrow with another Politically Georgia. Tia Mitchell, Greg Bluestein, and I will uh, be here. Patricia Murphy will be off on assignment. In the meantime, if you have questions you'd like to ask Politically Georgia, you can call the Politically Georgia hotline anytime and leave a question. We'll answer it on Friday's show. The number is 404 526 2527. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Ocean Breeze, Tropical Beach, Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, You can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.